This podcast is brought to you by Highland. Highland offers solutions that complement your core insurance business, providing employees with a complete view of the information they need when and where they need it. Helping you deliver better experiences is at the heart of everything they do. Learn more at highland.com forward slash insurance. That's highland, H-Y-L-A-N-D.com forward slash insurance. Hi everyone, my name is Sarah Kachansky and welcome to episode 73 of InsureTech Insider. We are still recording remotely and we'd love to know what guests you think we should get on this show. Do get in contact by sending us an email to podcasts at 11fs.com if you know someone we should have along. Uh, so today's show is a new show, so we're going to be discussing the most interesting news in the InsureTech and insurance sphere from across the globe. I am joined today by my co-host Nigel Walsh. How are you doing today, Nigel? I'm thumbs up, but not anyone can see other than you guys, so I'm good, actually. It feels like a good day. Brilliant, and back from holiday, so... Uh... Relaxed and, and not on screens for four days, which was heaven. <laughs> we can only dream. Um, we are joined today by two amazing guests, both making their InsureTech Insider debuts. Uh, first up, we're joined by Malcolm Ferguson, partner at Octopus Ventures. Uh, thank you for joining us, Malcolm. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so could you, I think most people will know, but could you give us a quick overview of what Octopus Ventures is, please? Of course. So Octopus Ventures is a venture capital fund focused on seed and Series A stages initially. We've got a pretty lofty mission, which is to help pioneers change the world. Uh, and we've grown to manage just over a billion in assets to kind of support that mission. Today, we've backed over 120 companies, actually. Uh, and have actually moved to a particular focus on three core sectors, which we call pods. So future of money, future of health, and deep tech. And, and I'm one of the partners within the future of money pod and actually do most of our insurance investments. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for coming along. Uh, we are also joined by Alex Zuckerman, CMO and Chief Strategy Officer at Sapiens. Thank you for joining us today, Alex. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm doing very well and looking forward for this discussion. Wonderful. Um, so before we get started, could you tell us a little bit about Sapiens, please? Absolutely. So Sapiens is a global provider of uh, insurance software solutions uh, to the insurance industry. We work both on the PNC or general insurance space and on the life annuities and pension space. Uh, we're a global company serving about 500 insurance carriers globally across the US, UK, and Europe, and Asia Pacific, about 3,500 employees and close to $400 million in revenue. So just a small company then? Yep, exactly. And a classic <laughs> insurtech company. <laughs> um, brilliant. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining me. Let's get started. So the first story today is that Lemonade has published its Q2 results. So the overall headline is that uh, net loss has shrunk and premiums have grown. So overall headline is pretty good sounding. Um, the InsurTech released its results, reporting a 9% decrease in net loss and a 115% increase in enforced premiums. Um, it posted a net loss of $21 million for Q2 compared to 23.1 million for the same period last year. Um, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about how Lemonade had gone public and the company has since announced that it raised 319 million 
after high demand saw its price increase to $29 a share. Um, Lemonade had fewer than 1% of customers opting to defer their payments in Q2, whilst retention rates, click-through rates, and conversion rates all held steady. Uh, So a quick quote from them is that, at the start of the quarter, we significantly slowed our marketing spend, suspended non-essential hiring, and offered to deferred customers' payments. Then we braced for impact. We expected to see a spike in churn, a drop in demand, and a hit to our cash flow, and none materialized. Well, that sounds pretty good to me. I'm not sure everybody else can say the same, given uh, you know recent circumstances. Um, does anybody have any initial thoughts on on Lemonade? I mean, they've kind of been one of the biggest players in InsureTech for a while, so you know every, everybody keeps an eye on them. Um, but does anybody have any thoughts off the bat? Yeah, Malcolm, go for it. So I'm a really interested observer in, in this space and them as a specific company. Um, us as a fund are really interested in how uh, the new companies are changing the way consumers adopt and absorb and uh, you know, engage with insurance. And what we saw actually uh, in the deep, dark days of March and April was a real bifurcation of performance across different companies. And what we saw actually is on B2C insurance, so kind of where Lemonade play, some really interesting things happened. So you always think of this as quite a resilient category, I think. Um, When people are nervous, when there's economic uncertainty, they tend to want more insurance. Uh, And I think that's really positive. And I think the incumbents and the insurers themselves benefit from that. But what we did see, and I think this applied to Lemonade as well, and one of the reasons why they've seen really strong trading, is uh, some of the older school insurers weren't really ready to go remote yet. And actually, that meant that they stopped marketing spend and their call centers closed down. And that was actually fantastic for some of our companies. Mm. Many is one in particular that just saw their market share double because no one was advertising. (laughs) <laughs> so then advertising costs went down and people were looking for insurance. So it was pretty brilliant. And I, I think that dynamic will definitely be playing out at Lemonade, which is why we've seen such good performance this quarter. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't actually considered that. Whilst I, whilst I know that those things happen from the big players across finance, they shut things down. I hadn't really considered that that meant that the smaller players are ready to take the slack. And um, I think, of course, the thing with Lemonade is as well, you still need home insurance. We can talk about travel insurance or you know car insurance. That's a bit different. But you are still going to need to insure your home. Uh, Nigel, you, you wanted to say something. Well, uh, you, were, you mentioned a point about people in uncertain times want more insurance. But I think Sarah and I, you and I discussed in a previous show, people are actually moving to a point where if you were at home all day, then actually your renters or home insurance would probably be, A, it would go down in terms of claims because you'd spot things like escape of water, which is a uh, a high issue uh, early on. But as you were there and not going out, there was going to be a lower requirement for it or a lower potential need. I actually now heard num- a number of people saying contrary to, the, to, the, to that, which I think is actually quite interesting, I get the pet, right? Because pets just gone bonkers. Everyone seems to have a new dog, cat, guinea pig, snake, whatever, and are you know, being insured by bought by many and do, doing a fabulous job. So it's um, uh, the pet one I totally get, and it's one that you you go buy. I'm surprised and pleased as a as a long time fan of Lemonade and what the team are up to um, of of what they're doing. So it's I think it's good to see. I think they followed all the advice of I can't remember who it was. Well, it was Andreas Horowitz that came out with the original advice to say. If you're in the startup space, protect your runway and cut costs early and exactly mm. as, as, they've, as they've defined it. So it's no surprise to, to anyone, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because obviously we've seen a, a few different uh, tacks on this, but, you know, some some people are doing obviously a lot more advertising, particularly in spaces where they can fill those gaps. So as you said, bought by many as one. I seem to have seen an awful lot of car adverts for Drover lately as well, which I know isn't um, exclusively insurance, but makes perfect sense because now is, now is their time. Um, Alex, do you have any thoughts on this? Sure. <clears throat> I think that the one I, I fully agree with what you said before about home insurance being quite a, a significant type of insurance that is still being uh, uh, bought or int- uh, there is a high level of interest by uh, by the B2C customers. Uh, we cannot say it about all the lines of business in the insurance space, but definitely on on some of them. And this is a good example. But from my point of view, I think the the other element of, of increasing the premiums is in the in the proposition of Lemonade being a pure digital player, mobile friendly, pay qu- claims quickly, the onboarding is very rapid, and it's so, so suitable to the, especially the initial effect of the COVID when everybody went back home, behind the screens, you communicate with the globe through the screen and through your mobile, and then the effect, even though it's not new, proposition i think the embracing this proposition by the larger crowd and being able even to differentiate more against uh, more traditional players this is another brick in the impact they are doing in this quarter I guess also perhaps you have more time to research newer players, but perhaps before you just went, your renewal quote came in and you went, oh, yeah, okay, that works. We need cover. Whereas now you are cutting commutes out and people are generally having more time. So you think, oh, well, I might go and see if there's a better deal out there and you might you might look for something different. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, there's been I've seen lots of stuff online where people have got more time to do admin, which is kind of nice. You're not like squeezing it all into a Saturday or Sunday and trying to find things where contact centers are shut or you can't get onto the deal that you want or you've got a question. Or resenting it because you've had to give, I I resent giving up my weekend to life men, as I call it. I'm like, no, it's my weekend. (laughs) That's true. It kind of gets ignored to the very end until you actually need it or you've run out. And I guess now that we've got that commute time or other time back, we're actually doing different things. I, I called for an appointment earlier that I would have normally had to squeeze in in a, a spare five minutes and I actually had time to do it. It was kind of refreshing. I didn't feel I didn't feel any animosity towards the company because I wasn't in a rush in that sort of way. Yeah, does anybody have any yeah, Malcolm, final thoughts and then we'll we'll move on. But um... Yeah, following on from that thought about um admin and its a horrible impact on your life and in general we'd like rather avoid it completely. Um and I think there's there's some really cool businesses helping us in that way life insurance was an area we looked at in in depth um and we ended up backing a business called dead happy which i think oh we love dead happy around here we're big fans and number one thing don't spend three days uh getting a medical exam and giving some blood when you could do it in three minutes and save yourself time and go and learn to speak a language instead which is much better use of time i'd say (laughs) <laughs> I've just had a, a private note from our producer. Oh, I love Dead Happy. So it's turning into a little bit of an ad for them. But I don't think anybody's a competitor here, so I think we're all right. Um, Nigel, do you want to lead us on to the next story, which is um, somewhat linked, I would say? Yeah, very much indeed. Thank you. Um, so the next story is um, Zurich feeling the in- impact of the pandemic. And if I'm, if I'm being really honest, I think this could be almost any large insurer, if I read out the following. So a uh, summary of this is, you know, COVID-19 pandemic has struck again. Another insurance giant uh, left reeling from the impact. Uh, they announced their interim results for 2020, showing 
Uh, operating profit of 1.7 billion, a 40% drop from last year's H1 of 2.8. So it is a material and significant drop. But as I said at the, at the outset, I think you can almost read any large insurer um, uh, uh, interim results given this current period and probably have a similar story to tell. Uh, a large chunk of this could be blamed for the impact of COVID, uh, which they attributed 686 million to this. But despite the gloom, uh, CEO Mario Greco was keen to point the strong growth across commercial insurance, uh, GWPs, as an indicator that the group is still well positioned. And I would argue with 1.7 billion in profit, I think they're very well positioned. Uh, probably a, a different conversation. Um, the combined ratio was the other one that I think they pointed out uh, specifically here. It stood at 99.8, just tucking under the magic 100 number. Uh, that's up, unfortunately, from last year of 95.1, which I think will be an interesting indicator going forward. And Malcolm, no doubt you're nodding away. We'll have an interesting perspective on this. Can so you think, remind us what combined ratio is, Nigel, for people who are not au fait with reading these results? Because there are many of us out there who have to do it, but also many others who, who you know, have their, have more time in their lives, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I, I should probably even hand to Malcolm on this one, who's looking okay. at all the investing of these. Should I, should I do that, Malcolm? I would be delighted to, yeah. So um, the combined ratio, and I'll, I'll, I won't give the, the technical definition, but the, um, the definition I, I at least go with is um, when a in individual pays their premium, uh, the insurer receives that and then pays some of that out in claims. That is the loss ratio. And then the, the expenses of actually running that book from on behalf of the insurer is the expenses that sit on top. Those two things added together, hopefully, like you say, less than 100. And that means the insurer makes some money. Because everybody's obsessed with lemonades for a while, weren't they? Because lemonade published theirs; they have their quarterly journals, and it's just sort of—I kept seeing it everywhere, and I was like, "I have to go in and learn what this is." It's looking quite good now, isn't it? In the sixties, it looked like. Which is which is industry leading, right? You could argue. I mean, everyone else operates, and we have a report that shows quartiles of uh, insurance across different segments, because the core for different segments is uh, highly variable. And then you get events like this where costs go up and whatever. So, so it's really interesting to watch these and to see who's always in top right versus bottom left. So um, I guess for the, for, for, the, for the team here, it's, you know, do we think larger companies feel the impact harder because of the variety of insurance they provide? I mean, Zurich is a large, global, um, not, obviously not a monoline like a, like a Lemonade, or even though Lemonade's not monoline anymore, is it? Um, not a monoline provider across multiple countries. Are they more susceptible to feeling the impact of this or are they more protected because they've got different lines of business? Alex, do you want to jump in on that one? Sure. I think that uh, in essence, those big players will be a bit more uh, um, more affected by that because they also hold a lot of assets and a lot of portfolio that is very relevant uh, to be affected by the COVID-19. Take Lemonade, for example, if it was a travel in the travel industry, rather than on the homeowners, we would be having a totally different conversation at the moment because the travel definitely suffered significantly. Uh, so when you look at the big players with the diversified portfolio, there's definitely uh, definitely an impact there. When you look also on the operation operating profit, need also to look at the, all the internal activities that such companies are doing to face the COVID at the beginning, like 
transfer everything to move from home, work out your distribution channels a bit differently than before, and all those activities that might be one-time cost, but it all come back to this quarter. So, so definitely the combination of those aspects, I think we will see there an impact. Um, we will see higher impact even though on, on monoline providers of, of lines of business that are problematic at, at, the, at this timing. I mean, you, you could look at some of their book and go, they have a very strong, at least in the UK, uh, municipal book. So public buildings and whatever else. Uh, uh, you can look at the commercial book of, of which they talked about it being improving. Uh, and I think the fact that they have a multi-line approach, as you say, if they were just travel, they'd be in a really interesting situation. But they've got a motor book, they've got a fleet, they've got a whole host of things that says if your claims are down on one side, then actually your, it'd be, it balances off your, your payouts and other the, the other thing that I've seen, and again, it'd be good to get your, your perspectives on this, is um, if you look at the old builder builder's analogy, the best time to repair your roof is when it's not leaking. So do, <laughs> is insur- are insurers using this time to double down on investment in areas that they want to come out stronger from this rather than just protecting the runway? I mean, in, in the startup world, runway is important. But when you're um, a global organization like this, this is almost a let's get our act further together and accelerate some of the plans that we had. Yes, I fully think that the industry is maturing very much into, into the direction that you described. If you look at nationwide in the US, for example, so one of the um, initial things they did is to transfer everybody to work from home on a permanent basis and not only for the COVID. And this for me a good signal to how the industry is, is changing and how it's adapting itself to, to the what we call the new normal. Uh, and I'm, I'm quite positive that at least a lot of our customers and the people we talk to, we see these in initiatives of understanding what the new normal is going to be, uh, try to understand the impact on, on the industry and move quickly to this direction. Um, the th- some of the changes coming with the COVID will stay with us. And I think that carriers are looking for the right way and where to invest. And it's not necessarily what was done before will be done in the future. Yeah, I mean, I would like to think that, and I think that's true of some insurers, Although, and we've certainly had conversations at 11FS with insurers who are definitely thinking that way. But on the other hand, you do have insurers who've gone the other way, in the same way you have banks that have as well. So sort of pulling back on spend on R&D or tech hubs, and, and, and that's, I mean, it's the same It's the same thing, you know, as I said, repair your roof when it's not raining. It's like the first thing people do when these happen is they cut across the board HR and training. No, 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 that's not what you need to do right now. You need to get your, your people ready to be able to deal with whatever comes next. Um, I think, Nigel, you mentioned earlier, didn't you, that Aviva had culled a product that seemed perfect for the moment, one of their kind of month-by-month car insurance policies. Now, we were just having a chat about this, and I thought, well, that – but I know it's a new product and it was still kind of possibly in beta, but now doesn't seem this, the right time to cut a month by month car insurance policy, unless I've misunderstood. As you say, it was, it was actually Stephen Mendel from Bought by Many that plugged it online, was talking about um, uh, the role of the customer and all that sort of good stuff going forward. So I, I, I'm, I'm a uh, Viva Plus customer. So uh, yeah, it, it's, it's one that I think folks like Cover and Buy Miles and many others are looking to move into that space. It's an interesting view to see where or how that evolves over time, I think. Um, so, Mark, are you going to say as well? Yeah, so th- that was my biggest fear, actually, when all of this started. Uh, as an investor in a lot of D2C insurance companies, the reason they have an opportunity to even have an attempt at disrupting is because they've found this symbiotic relationship with the incumbents 
who provide underwriting and some regulatory support in exchange for access to innovation and tech, which is generally the race between those two things to be what could be found. And my fear was that they would cut those innovation budgets and essentially stop uh, enabling the next generation of really exciting innovation. And uh, you, you may have seen the uh, the BuyMiles announcement with Zurich, where Zurich are now providing the underwriting for BuyMiles for the next five years or so. So uh, I'm glad they're not one of those partner parties who have decided but, to cut that. But, but I don't think it's the innovation budgets that are cut. I think this has been a really good stage for insurers to take a uh, incumbent insurers to take a fresh look at where we're spending the money and are we getting the right return? I don't think, and I know Sarah and I had a, a, a conversation about one of the banks that seemed to have shut one down, but actually it wasn't necessarily the fund was shut. It was the property strategy that was changing. I still think they're investing, but it may have gone back to the business line as opposed to being held separately into the lab stroke um, garages style thing that we've seen in the past. That was the needed intervention at the time. I guess with, with one minute left on, on this one, a, a quick one for, for everyone. G- given this is the first half results and one of our hamstrings in my mind for insurance is that we measure quarterly or half yearly or whatever else, what's the second half of the year going to look like for us? Anyone <laughs> want to get their magic balls out and uh, I mean, tell us what the crystal ball says? That would have been a tough question last year. This year, I don't even know what the law is going to be about me going to the pub next week, let alone what what a global insurer might do. I'm not prepared. Anyone... To, I'm not prepared to bet. Sorry, I'm taking this round out. I think it's the one positive on this half coming up versus the last one is at least we know what the uh, the big scary thing that's coming to get us no, is. No, <laughs> don't say that because it'll be something else. We thought that when we had the floods and then we had wildfires and then we had literal plagues of locusts across Africa and then we had a global pandemic. So, Malcolm, if we have another one of the deadly plagues, I'm going to put it all squarely on your shoulders. Uh, I mean, natural cat, right, is is huge in itself. We're going through storm season or hurricane season in North America and then two of our friends, I think James Lloyd's mentioned it this morning online, uh, and one of my colleagues in Singapore, have we ever had a Category 9 storm hit Singapore or Hong Kong? I'm like, my God. I mean, they're all just turning up. It's like every day you open the headlines, new strain of coronavirus that's worse than the previous one. You're like, oh, please, just stop looking at the news. They've got bubonic plague in California. <laughs> oh, God. I'm pulling, I'm pulling a, a face, which is just like I give up. I think it's a good stage to hand it back to you, Sarah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a break there and, and perhaps, you know, stop thinking about the worst that could possibly happen next. Um, in the meantime, we want to ask you for some help. So InsureTech Insider listeners, we need you. If you listen to the show, whether this is your first episode or your 73rd episode, or you dip in and out, we'd love it if you could take a few minutes to give us your feedback and suggestions to help shape the future of the show. That's both for InsureTech Insider, but also for our sister podcast, FinTech Insider. We want to know what you like, what you don't like, and where we can improve, because we make this podcast for you, our listeners, and we want to make it even better. To help us out, please take a moment to visit bit dot lee forward slash fintech insider survey it shouldn't take more than five minutes to complete but it would mean so much to us that's bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey all right thank you for pausing and let's get on with the show so speaking of coronavirus there's no escaping it um, the next story is about the rapidly changing travel corridors, particularly here in the UK um, and whether travel insurance is still valid and what consumer rights are. So um, a lot of people have either abandoned holiday plans or 
booked holiday plans on a whim or having to rearrange holiday plans. Um, and that's partly because rules about quarantine here, but also in other countries, are changing rapidly. Um, so just as an example, France and the Netherlands were added to the UK quarantine list on the 15th of August, and I think it was due to apply within the next 24 hours. So a lot of British holidaymakers who um, who were unable to, to you know, do that when they got back, they, did, they couldn't quarantine for 14 days for whatever reason, suddenly had to try and get back to the UK. Um, that could mean, you know, buying new flights. It could mean buying new train tickets. It could mean buying, you know, super expensive travel because its demand has suddenly shut up if they could even get them. Um, so in cases like that, where only quarantine rules are changed, as opposed to governmental advice changing, you're really unlikely to be able to get your money back from your operators or hotels. But within the UK, if the foreign office also changes its advice against travel to a country, so it could be there's an advice against all essential travel, there's advices against all travel. If it does that whilst you're away, then you should be able to get a refund for the holiday or you should be able to, to rearrange it at a later date if you can no longer travel. Um, in countries where travel is allowed, according to the Foreign Office, then the cover completely depends on your insurance policy. Um, and as an aside, most insurers will cover for illness and injury while overseas, but not all will do so for coronavirus-related illness. So if you break your leg, you're fine, but if you get coronavirus, probably not. Um, and the Association of British Insurers said travel insurance was to cover losses incurred by unforeseen circumstances, and coronavirus is no longer unforeseen. Which is rather my stand on this. I do think if you're going to go abroad, then fair play to you. But you have to accept things will change and you kind of have to accept the consequences. If it's a holiday, if there's a reason that you absolutely have to go, you need to visit um, an unwell parent or something like that, then then that's different. But I, my personal perspective on this is if you're going abroad, try and get travel insurance. But even if you can't, if you're still going to go anyway, I rather think you have to accept the consequences of that decision. But that's possibly a bit too strict i don't know what does anybody else think i've gone straight to the rules and I, i'm with you sarah uh in that you know all holidays cancelled all international travel cancelled the fco website as of five past five today says the fco currently advises british nationals against all but essential international travel now when you also then read in parallel one and a half million people jetted off to spain you think they go, that sounds like a lot of essential travel or a lot of non-essential travel. And, and I understand having taken five days away myself uh, in the UK, getting away from screens and family time and everything else is critical. I mean, I've sat in this home office for long enough and actually probably see my kids less, even though they're like four metres and uh, four metres away. So I understand the importance of it for economy, for mental health, for so much more. I just can't add the two things together. And maybe this is a really bad example, but when things change, I understand that for some people, the advice needs to change really quickly, i.e. get back by a certain time. You saw all on the regular news in the UK, people rushing to get home by, I think it was like 4am or 5am on a certain day. But I, I likened it to COVID-19 is letting people die. Isn't that the equivalent of an active shooter in a shopping, shopping mall? And if that was a true in North America, you would run as fast as you could to get out of the way or not be there in the first place. They're probably not the latter one in this case, but and maybe it's a terrible analogy, so I don't mean to offend any, but but equally, it's, if, if something's there, you just get out of this way as quickly as possible. I think, I think you know, on this case, I think, to, to you know, on the insurance point, I suppose, rather than, you know, my moral standpoint is that 
I think in this case, it's not insurers do mess up. I think in this case, I shouldn't be expecting an insurer to cover me for what's going to happen next because I don't know. They don't know. Like, it doesn't matter how good your underwriting or risk modeling is. I just don't think you can predict it. Well, it's a known risk, right? The insurance is there to undo the other, to protect against the unknown. This is known, as as you said. Yeah. Malcolm, sorry, you had a point. Nigel and I need to get down off our soapboxes for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) I must say, I'm probably on the same page as you. I think the key is that you just know what you're covered for. And it's all about transparency and communication and clarity of message and trying to avoid small print. I think that's where some of the, you know, the, the next generation insurers have tried to make a difference is making that a bit more transparent. But fundamentally, if, uh, the, if, you, if you want to have certain risks covered, um, you need to understand that there's a price associated with those risks. And I think actually watching how this kind of categories evolved in March, there was nothing. And now there's actually quite a lot of new products, which maybe meet people's desires, even if they are very, very expensive. I guess we've, we've had that with, um, I guess, pre this travel insurance in general is quite a cheap kind of premium, but not if you're, uh, I guess, a, a tr- uh, cancer treatment uh, traveler, for example, where there's different risks and they've been priced in and, there's products mm. available. So for me, there's some parallels to that. And if you really need to go on holiday for whatever reason, uh, having a product that does achieve what you need, even if it's very expensive, may, may be adequate. But the, regulate, the regulator stepped into that before. Sarah and I have covered where um, people were being penalised for pre-existing conditions. And you'll know this from the book by many on the pet side, but people were being penalised for conditions and making uh, travel insurance unaffordable beyond recognition. So they were putting things in place to protect consumers um, as opposed to profit from them in this space. Because, you know, if you declared you had done, and, and the question set for travel insurance, to be fair, is quite prehistoric in many cases. It's quite simple. It's consistent across almost all carriers. Um, but if you declare you've got a condition, I declare I've got asthma, I take my asthma pump once in a blue moon, I still declare it because the last thing I want to do is get excluded because you've got an asthma pump. But that creates an exception, which puts my price up ever so slightly. But then if my mum doesn't, she's got diabetes or whatever it might be, it just doesn't seem right, does it? I don't, ooh, I don't know. Well, I think it's a, one of the basics of health insurance works the same. So yes, uh, th- there is a connection between the condition and the premium and the underwriting process. Whether it's a, a fair socially or not, I think that's a different discussion, but that's the practice. I think when it comes to travel insurance on the COVID, there's so much unknown. There's unknown on the actuarial side and the risk assessment side. You can estimate and you have a lot of data to understand how a, a typical injury rate is and, and all the different accidents that may happen on a, on a travel. COVID puts it in a different place and every country acts differently uh, with COVID's uh, ill people. So also the decision, what does this uh, insurance cover? Does it cover your quarantine expenses? Does it cover a lot of other stuff? And, and why is it different from being sick with COVID back home? Because that's also a possibility. So the travel is not that. So I think there's a lot of complexities around that. But eventually from from personal thing, I think just go, don't go on a plane if you don't have to do that. Yeah, or a train or a bus or, you know, anything, to be honest with you, if you don't have to. Because, to, to, to Nigel's point, I don't need to get on a train, but there are plenty of people out there who do need to get on that train to go to work. So I need to step back and let those people go to work. Or we need to step back and let the people who need to go and visit their parents who are unwell 
fly to Spain and not increase everybody else's chances. Now, again, that's like a whole social good thing. But just to the point about like, you know, um, for example, pre-existing conditions, diabetes and things, I think people are more willing to take on perhaps almost the um, Islamic model of insurance where you subsidize. So I'm healthy. So I pay slightly more than I need to to subsidize you who's got asthma so that we pay about the same. But if it's travel, I'm not paying a higher travel premium because you're being an idiot and going somewhere you shouldn't be going. So I think, again, it depends on the type of insurance. Um, but I'm going to move us on to the next story, which is for you, Nigel. Unfortunately, it's not a particularly chirpy one either. No, and, and thank you. I mean, the, the travel one can go on forever and ever, and I think we'll see lots of it evolve. Um, this one is all around the um, tragic blast at the Beirut port, which we also saw on news and um other other social channels unravel live. It was terrible. Fourth of August, the biggest blast in Beirut's history killed 154 people. Uh, just seeing some of the the pictures afterwards, you can't believe how much this uh, of the city actually levelled. Um, I think at the time of the explosions, officials estimated that, that the uh, economic losses of around 15 billion were being declared. Much of these would not have been insured. Then on the 17th of August, insurance claims towards the explosion of the port had so far reached around 425 million, according to a minister there. Uh, And that includes claims by the port itself for property damage and business interruption. Uh, Caretaker economy minister Raoul Nahim said two and a half thousand claims have been filed so far, according to his Twitter account. I'm I'm sure that's not via his Twitter account, uh, but have been uh, registered so far. And they expect up to 10,000 claims in total to be raised. So this is really interesting. I mean, this brings back massive memories to me of the the Chinese port a few years before. But uh, maybe this is me spending too long in insurance. But uh, the first thing I sit there and go, should we be storing this sort of stuff in the port in the first place in an unsafe way? And wouldn't that be the first thing that we look to in the small print of an insurance policy? I so think when- so, but the stuff shouldn't have been there. I mean, I think it's, from my understanding, the whole thing is a byproduct of Lebanon's really um, turbulent uh, recent past and that actually nobody knew the stuff was there and there's almost certainly some corruption involved. So that's my understanding of the story as it's come out. You can never really tell. But whilst I agree with you, like, yeah, under normal circumstances, you don't store something that's highly explosive in a port. It was, you know, and if it is stored, it's stored in, you know, the special containers or whatever you need to do. Um, I'm sure all of those rules are in place in Lebanon. I just think that this was a byproduct of the the civil unrest and the everything else that's happened to that that country, which is not, yeah. If you if you add all the things up, you've got the political challenges in the country. You've got years of potentially underinvestment. You've then got coronavirus at the same time as a global pandemic. And now this, uh, one of the things that I was reading, I thought was actually quite heartbreaking, was if you think about the supply chain, and Terry, you know, I talked about this earlier, the supply chains of other things, this stored all of the country's grains to make flour or whatever it may be for the next two weeks. So we've actually got crises emerging in multiple different facets. So never mind loss of life, never mind loss of business, never mind loss of home. You've now got actually... Um, existential threats to the food supply chain as well coming in by the port and that was stored here so who wants to have a, a have a, a view on this this is this is tragic beyond all recognition right 
Yeah, it's, it's devastating. Um, and it's almost less of an insurance challenge now than a human aid challenge. Mm. And just, um, you know, a lot of people that are dealing with the consequences aren't those that cause any of the problems. Uh, so it's a, it's a big, big problem. It probably doesn't come at the worst time either when you, when you think that the, the, uh, the infrastructure is already struggling as most infrastructures are around the world to have something else on top. It's quite unhelpful. I have a question about the, and I don't know the answer, but um, if it might have caused, you know, 10,000 claims have been filed, presumably there's going to be a knock-on effect on global insurers here as well. I'm just trying to think of where where that impact falls out. I mean, obviously, the, the cost of human life and the impact on people's businesses and the, the country's infrastructure are absolutely devastating. But to bring the conversation slightly back to insurance, who is going to be responsible for paying out on those claims? Presumably, there are some Lebanese insurance companies, which I'm sorry, I have absolutely no idea about. But presumably, some of the larger claims, particularly if you're looking at shipping and ports, are going to be for global insurers, or at least, you know, some of the big cat players are going to be hit by this, is my guess. And maybe somebody understands it better than I do. One of the areas I guess we've been looking at is how do you help the incumbent insurers understand where their risk lies. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's quite a lot of people that have exposure that maybe aren't as aware of the level of exposure yes. currently. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of people reading over quite a lot of contracts trying to understand what, what the damage is to them as a business. Um, mm. Who knows? Do we have claims automation yet that could solve any of this? Probably not. We do have some AI which helps um, read some of these things, but it's, it's, um... Well, this is this goes back to the Chinese port as well. So, so I talked about fifteen billion of economic loss. They reckon the insured loss is likely to be two and a half to three and a half billion. So, very similar to the Chinese one. And to your point on technology and AI and insurtech, actually, one of the things that they did very early on the on the port was they had actually no idea around uh, the risk or the concentration risk. More importantly, about what port, what ships were in, what ships were out, and everything else. And if you there's quite a few good case studies from the Chinese example where they were doing counting of cars or what was left of cars using satellite imagery. And it was done in, you know, in, in a heartbeat. It was done in seconds. And they were able to identify, given the volume of vehicles, this is what was there. I think from what I'm seeing, uh, or certainly what I've read, any of the big insurers, the uh, Swiss Re's, the Axes, the Allianz have all said it's probably too soon to comment on who, because normally you have someone step forward and go, actually, we, this is our loss. You know, you see it on if a, if a plane crashes or there's a major cat mm. event, you go, here's our exposure. Um, everyone has said so far it's too early for us to comment whether um, right. we were exposed and to what extent we our exposure was. But in the good old-fashioned world of underwriting, there will be a lead in here and there'll be many followers that will have um, elements of risk covered. That piece there is yet uh, yet to be exposed as to say we were the lead uh, underwriter or read um, carrier on the port or some of the businesses around there or whatever else. Yeah. Any final thoughts or shall I just, I'll um, leave it, leave it with that, I think. Um, so just before we do leave you, um, I caught up with Sunny Patel, who is the founder and CEO of InsureMe. Uh, Sunny told us how his company is using conversational AI and how this can be used to increase customer engagement. 
Welcome to InsureTech Insider Interviews. I'm Sarah Kachansky, and it is my pleasure to be joined by Sunny Patel, founder and CEO at InsureMe, the company that provides a conversational back-end dashboard for insurance carriers to manage their solutions and better meet their customers. Sunny, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you today? Good. How about yourself? I am well. I am well, given the circumstances. Right. And it could be, could be better, but I guess we're all, we're all uh, dealing with it like champions. Exactly. Uh, exactly. We will, as we discussed earlier, get through this. Um, so to start off, can you unpack what I, uh, what I said at the beginning when I introduced the company? Uh, what is InsureMe? What does it do? Yeah, so we, uh, we're a conversational AI company based out of Phoenix, Arizona, um, that's built a digital assistant uh, that we've named Violet. Um, that can be easily customized for uh, quoting consumers online, guiding a claimant through a streamlined FNOL or first notice of loss, um, and has the ability to answer any sort of like FAQ or questions that uh, policyholders may have um, around the clock. So we white label out our solution to insurance carriers both here at home and around the world um, so they can kind of take their digital uh, customer experience to the next level um, and provide a world-class customer experience. Brilliant. So um, how, did you, how did you get into this? What's your background? Have you, have you always been an AI expert or is your background insurance or are you, are you one of those people who had, had nothing to do with either until you founded this company? No, no, no. So actually, you know, this company started in my dorm room in college uh, right before I graduated. And I, throughout college, I worked at an agency uh, life insurance agency out here in Arizona, right next to ASU, and um, spent about three and a half years there across two different agencies and um, saw that the way we were marketing and selling our insurance was just complex, outdated, not really consumer friendly. And it was all being done by, uh, you know, kind of like agents and brokers, uh, paper, fax, and phone. And I was like, you know what, as a 21 year old at the time, I'm 25 now, uh, it nothing made any sense to me. I'm like, we live in an Amazon world, like this needs to be done. Or, you know, the, the uh, potential buyers um, and policyholders should be able to do a lot of these things on their phone. Um, and I looked around the market and saw that at least in the US at the time, uh, it was just very, very behind um, from a digital uh, standpoint. So left that company my senior, right before my senior year of college started and founded InsureMe. Um, and have just been running with it ever since. So we, uh, I would say, you know, the roots are in the insurance space, but um, kind of built a, a team of industry experts as well as technologists that know AI and have that subject matter expertise. And that's kind of how we make the magic happen. So what were you studying at college just out of interest? Was it sort of like something unrelated? Was it English literature or something like that? <laughs> no, no, no. It was actually entrepreneurship. So it was perfect timing. And uh, I, to be honest with you, I only got like the value out of my whole four years in the last, I feel like the last two semesters, because they were all, you know, specifically uh, classes that were around like startups and entrepreneurship. But um, that's, that was my, that was my, my degree. And it was just the perfect thing, you know, starting this company and the class, you know, at, I would spend all my, you know, free time, uh, networking and trying to meet people that could help me get this venture off the ground. And then at school or at college, I would be in class learning about venture capital and uh, marketing and entrepreneurship and things like that. So it was 
it all just kind of came together at the perfect time. Yeah, you must be one of the very few people in the world who actually does a job that, you know, relates directly to the to the degree they hold. Yeah, <laughs> and luckily, you know, and, and uh, it just all, yeah, it just all worked out. Um, but if uh, I did make a change to entrepreneurship halfway through, before that, it was, uh, it was, uh, I got into college with global politics, it was going to be in global politics. So I would have gone down that road, you know, and thank, thankfully, I didn't seeing the way the world is today. Yeah, it sounds like you made the right choice. Um, so you've kind of gone over this a, a little bit already, but can we delve into some of the, the specific problems that InsureMe um, and, and, you know, Violet are, are trying to solve? So um, is it, you know, is it customer engagement? Is it trying to stop dropouts? Is it trying to serve more customers? Is it trying to reduce costs? You know, what, what, what are the, the specific problems that, that uh, your, your products and services are, are designed to fix for, for insurance companies? Yeah, so it's uh, because of the nature of the technology and how flexible it can be in terms of the use cases behind it. Uh, it's kind of all over the place, but we've seen that the our biggest use case behind Violet currently by insurers that use her um, is on the claim side of things. So really automating that first notice of loss and reducing the overall cost of claim um, for that company and then increasing the, the overall claim satisfaction. Um, so the net promoter score, score is behind that. Um, also, uh, she's been used for sales. So um, guiding a customer through the uh, a needs analysis, quoting application, and in some cases, even binding if it's a property and casualty uh, insurer. Um, and then lastly, on the, on the service side, uh, utilizing Violet. And we haven't, you know, we're still working with a couple of companies on getting this use case off the ground, but um, utilizing Violet to be kind of the digital assistant to do anything that a policyholder may want to make uh, or do during the lifetime of their policy. So make a change to their address, update their payment, um, that general kind of service that goes through currently the call center or through other channels, um, directing that through Violet and making that a more customizable um, and personalized experience. So um, it can be, you know, uh, reducing the cost of claim, uh, enabling them to capture a new, a whole new market that's out there. So the digital market um, in the United States, they are, you know, most of the market is still reliant on agents and brokers and that channel um, that are not capturing the, the digital audience. So in a way, if carriers are using Violet on the sales side, they are enabling uh, themselves to generate more revenue, uh, top line. Um, and on this claims and service side, I think it's more about operational efficiencies and reducing costs. So um, on the, on, you know, on the topic of, of the chatbot or the assistant, if, if you like, um, you, you called it Violet and you refer to it as her. Was it a conscious decision to make it female? Uh, so we did. Okay. So how we get to that, um, we did a whole variety of, and it was, you know, I'll be frank with you. It, it was cause it resonated better in the testing that we did. Um, we had about, if I remember correctly, it was 15 shortlisted names, um, both male and female. And then we, we took that to a group of, uh, people just around our building and we work out of galvanize, uh, it's a co-working space. And we said, you know, pick the name that you you like out of this um, and, and give us the feeling that you have behind them. And they filled out the forms. We started to narrow it down and we saw that um, people were more trusting with a female name. They, I don't know why or how, but they just wore. And then so we were like, okay, it needs to be a, a female persona. 
Um, then we we had a, a, a list of five names that we narrowed down. Of, it was Violet, Emma, Sophia, Alexa, and Alexa is obviously Amazon's thing already. So we crossed that out. Um, and the other ones people liked, but they all knew somebody by that name, you know? So there was like, uh, one guy, one guy was like, Oh yeah, I, I, I like Sophia, but she was also like a girl I went to school with and she was a bitch. So that was it, you know, like it automatically correlated that name to somebody that was familiar. Whereas with Violet, um, there was only three people out of a hundred that knew a Violet in real life. And we were like, okay, well, here we go. Now, you know, a Violet and that's Insurami's AI. And it fit perfectly with kind of the branding and, and brand aesthetic that we we're trying to take with the, with Insurami as a, as a whole. Yeah. I, I, it's a fascinating question. And I, I, I have dug into it on, on a number of occasions. Um, you know, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm not asking you to explain the psychology behind it. Just wondered from your, <laughs> yeah. you must know that you must get this question a lot. Um, one question I was going to ask is, is it because Violet can be white labeled? Does that mean that the insurance company could make it a gender neutral name? Should they so wish to? They could, they could. No one has requested that yet. Um, but we are giving the option because like over here, you know, there's, uh, I'll give you an example like this progressive that already has flow, you know, they have personas associated with their brand. And they may want to choose to have that same persona be the assistant. So that's why we we've kept that option open. But, you know, I'm frankly trying to move towards uh, an offering where we don't even give them the option if if we if any way uh, possible, because we really are trying to build a brand around around Violet. And that's kind of a, a differentiating factor from uh, some of our competition that are kind of general chatbot providers. Uh, we saw that personifying it and talking about the technology as like a person would just make people's imaginations um, go, go, you know what I mean? So, they would, so for example, I was on a uh, call with a company and they were like, oh, well, we can use her to do this and she can do that. Whereas before it was like, could the platform, you know, potentially connect? It was just a whole different mindset that they were in. Um and hence why we made we made that pivot to a, a personified brand. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's it's not something we'll we'll linger on today. Um, I do just hope <laughs> we get to a stage where we don't need you know a, it would get rid of the problem right with you knowing somebody who has that name, wouldn't it? Um, and you know, yeah. I would I'd prefer it if we just had you know non named services. But you know, we will we will not go into that. Um, in terms of kind of uh, you know the the product itself, we've talked about the advantages. We've talked about some of the problems it can help. Um, to overcome yeah what kind of hurdles remain so there is a question out there um you know that that people don't necessarily trust bots and not themselves um you know people don't actually like that there are some things they like to speak to a, a human uh, to well if you know what i mean um is that yeah. is that something you've, you've come across and and how do you address that and maybe kind of what other hurdles are there out there that that you still sort of have to overcome yeah, I mean, so there's going to be the user adoption portion of it. Um, I think now, given the circumstance around the world, more and more people are going to be comfortable with interacting with uh, just digital services as a whole. Um, and that, you know, chatbots are going to be one aspect of that. So I'm hoping that, that we can accelerate that adoption curve. Um, but it is a very real one where uh, people, you know, because chatbots have been around for a while now, and uh, I've even dealt with some of them and I'm like, I don't want to <laughs> talk with this thing because it doesn't know what I'm trying to do, you know? 
and it just gives you silly answers back. So the technology is evolving. You know, we are, a con- you know, Violet is powered by a contextual AI. So it it's a little bit deeper than, than a general FAQ bot. Um, they'll give just general responses. Um, so the, the technology is evolving. Uh, the chatbot solutions are getting a little bit more robust. Um, I think uh the challenge with delivering a more robust solution that can uh feel more human is connecting in with the obviously all the various legacy systems that we have to deal with to pull the data on the policy uh, holders information and policy information you know getting that data and feeding it to the nlu in real time and then spitting it back in a contextual way uh, all in the matter of like 0.1 seconds is is a tough thing so especially when a lot of the companies that we're targeting, you know, that we're, we're trying to go after the legacy providers. Um, they are not, they, a lot of them are still working on mainframe, which like the, when I started this company, I didn't even know what that was. I'm like, what is that? You know, can somebody please explain? And they're like, yeah, this was set up in the seventies and eighties, like when you were not even like born. So, and that has been the biggest hurdle. So it's like the legacy systems, it's the legacy mindset um, of people still just want to speak with people, you know, like an actual human. They, they still have to get past that point of giving their trust to uh, a digital assistant or a chatbot. So it's, uh, it's kind of like the legacy mindset uh, and just the legacy processes and the legacy systems. I think those are the, the three main hurdles um, that we have to get blow through uh, in the next couple of years. Do you think that the current situation will speed that up? Um, by which I mean, you know, a lot of insurers are going to be looking at their current systems and going, these are not fit for purpose, you know, with increased claims or people being concerned mm-hmm. and trying to get in touch because they don't know what their policy does or doesn't cover. Um, you know, do you, yeah. what, how do you think the insurance industry will respond when it comes to innovation? Because obviously, you're, as you just said, you're quite on the cutting edge. There aren't you know, not a lot of people using this service yet. Do you think that that will pick up mm-hmm. because um, the broader industry will go, yeah, okay, this is the wake up call we really need let's get on with it yes yes no i definitely do so that's why you know i'm actually more confident in what we're doing now than ever before because uh again the the adoption is going to be accelerated um the awareness of of accelerating some of these uh, initiatives digital initiatives within these bigger companies is also going to be uh accelerated so i think it's it's the perfect timing um, it is a wake-up call a lot of them needed uh, because in a lot of cases, there is no other way, right? So I spoke with one of our customers and they had to close down two of their national call centers um, for a, it was like a five-day period until they figured out how to get uh, people working from home. And they were like, yeah, Sunny, like we, I think now we get what you mean. And it's just like, and it maybe had to get to this point where they were not, they didn't have any other option um, other than providing a, a self-service tool of any kind, right? It's maybe it's not a chatbot specifically, but a lot of them don't even have the ability to sell something online. You know, if you're reliant on people and people are locked away in their homes, how are they going to generate business for the company, right? So it's all questions like this that that they're now starting to, I think, um, think about. And it's, it's an opportunity that we are obviously going to capitalize when the time is right. I don't think the time is right now because it's, we're still in the emergency mode. But when 
companies begin to look at the retrospectives on this situation and see what went wrong, what could have been better, um, hopefully they'll you know come talk to us. Well, let, let's hope for the entire industry's sake that that is what happens next, because I think, you know, it would be foolish for, for the insurance industry not to sort of capitalize on this opportunity, which sounds very, very wrong. But you know what I mean, um, capitalize on the fact that they should be investing more. They should be looking at how they can improve their technology and their services, and that should help their customers. They should have better products and services yeah. for their customers at the end of it. And we can hopefully see an end to a lot of these insurance products, which are just not fit for purpose. Exactly. So it's, it is, uh, as I say, it's just a, the universe at work, you know, <laughs> but there is a time and place to, to then approach them. And so that's why, you know, for us, we're not, uh, I've seen it on LinkedIn, like people are already starting to be like, oh, COVID-19 and please, please, you know, like do all this stuff. I think uh, there will be the time to have that conversation. I don't think it's now, but um, I think over the next couple of months, uh, definitely uh, would be the time to begin having some of these conversations to see how uh, technologies like this can, can really help their companies in the many years to come. Brilliant. Well, um, with that in mind, um, you know, what's next for conversational AI? You know, we kind of touched on it a little bit, but do you want to kind of, I guess, maybe summarize your thoughts when you talked about, you know, the evolution and the, you know, advancing uh, advancement of technology? You know, is there a particular uh, sort of summary you'd like to give of what you think's next for, for this? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the technologies, the core technology is going to keep evolving. You know, I don't think there's even any company out there that has some sort of system that is at the degree right now to do every type of customer service inquiry within a, within a company, because anything that's out there in market is still learning. Um, insurance companies are at the end of the day, treasure troves of data. So I think, and data is what makes AI better, right? Especially this type of, uh, technology. So, it's going to keep getting better, I think, in the long run. Um, also, like just the channels, right, that this type of technology is going to be accessed on. Um, you know, the, the, the channels that we're seeing right now is just basic like web or through the app. But as adoption grows on voice devices like an Amazon Alexa or Google Home, you know, how do you translate that into making the same service available on those devices? Um, as adoption there grows, I think that's going to be cool to see. Uh, but it is baby steps, and um, we're just doing it one step at a time. You know, it's just like I try not to predict out too much because it is um, just ever growing. Cool. All right. Well, um, let's hope it's exciting times ahead. Um, Sunny, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out more about you um, and what you're working at with InsureMe? Would you like to give us a website or a Twitter handle, perhaps? Yeah, so our website is just uh, www.insureme.com. It has all of our uh, company info, product info, and then I'm available on LinkedIn primarily. So it's linkedin.com uh, forward slash Sunny Patel 94. Um, and those are kind of the two areas uh, that I can be reached at. Brilliant. Well, as for me, you can find me at Sarah Kachansky on Twitter. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Thank you very much, Sunny. Um, that wraps up the news for this time. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Uh, do you have a website, a Twitter account, LinkedIn you'd like to share? Alex, would you like to go first? 
Sure, you can. Uh, you are welcome to to visit us at www.sapiens.com, and also follow us on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter on over the same name. Perfect, Malcolm. How about you? You can find me on LinkedIn or on the Octopus Ventures team website. And Nigel, fighting the good fight and beating up scooters one by one on Twitter <laughs> at Nigel Walsh. Okay. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kaczynski. Thank you to our guests today, to Alex, to Malcolm, to Sunny, and of course to Nigel. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at Instech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcast11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.